this week on The Futurist. In 30 years' time or 50 years' time, doesn't matter, we will have guaranteed swarms of smart robots uh, Which extracting... Which is, uh, is going to uh, destroy uh, the economics of the current world system, right? Extracting very valuable resources in the asteroid belt. So I don't know if at the time Bitcoin is going to be dominating. I don't know if blockchain is going to be uh, viable. So as those robots coordinate and, and uh, uh, allocate energy and uh, propellant and bandwidth and communication and other resources amongst them by the millions, if not the billions, are they going to use wire transfers, uh, credit cards? Uh, are they going to write yeah, paper it's, it's, checks to each other? Exactly. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm joined by Rob Tursek and uh, I'm Brett King. We are the hosts of this uh, relatively new show. Um, we hit a milestone uh, um, last week, uh, Rob, which is we became the, the second largest podcast for the Provoke Media Network. So that's yes. pretty cool, right? So, um, right on. Yeah, no, it's it's getting some great traction. So thanks everybody for your incredible support. And we have a a, a, a very cerebral, um, you know, a guest, a friend of both uh, uh, Robert and I over many years. Um, I'm really excited to have him on because we always have really engaging conversations, and he challenges thinking. And that is David Orban. He is the managing advisor of Beyond Enterprises. Uh, you may know him from the work he's done as the founder of the Network Society uh, Research Global Think Tank, and also he was faculty and advisor at Singularity University. Um, He's joining us uh, from somewhere in Northern Italy. Um, David Orban, welcome to The Futurists. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, Robert. It's great uh, to see you again, David. Yeah, so um, let me let me kick this off with a fairly simple one. Um, you know, you don't necessarily label yourself as a futurist, even though you, you clearly do work in that space. But when was it that you first realized you wanted to be involved in you know, building the future and advising on the future and, and you know, what, what took you down that path? Uh, the way I express uh, myself about this is that we are all time travelers. Uh, one minute per minute, we are going to get to a place we call future. And similarly to how we uh, choose uh, the, the path on a train uh, or a car uh, when we look at a map, uh, there is a map of the future where the contours of that place are becoming sharper as we get closer. And we have the power of shaping that future. And I knew that uh, I wanted us to improve this power, improve our ability to yield it uh, and to wield it in order to uh, make sure that the place when we get there is one we enjoy that uh, enables us to thrive. This was really um, at the very beginning of, of uh, my independent life, uh, if you wish, um, uh, already uh, 30, 40 years ago when I would be at dinner with someone, uh, one of my favorite questions uh, at 
towards the closing of the dinner when the other uh, person would be sufficiently drunk uh, is, okay, what is your 30-year plan? And uh, very few people would have an answer. Now, at the time I did, of of course, and I still do. And uh, since I said that uh, this started 30, 40 years ago, one of the questions you may ask uh, further uh, in this uh, conversation, hey, what was your plan and, and, and was it uh, completed in the meantime? So we will, we will uh, potentially go there. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I believe that uh, we have the opportunity to really be active about how our life is unfolding and as a consequence, cumulatively, uh, humanity uh, has the power uh, to intervene and make sure that uh, we are uh, happy about the outcome of uh, our uh, cumulative actions, what we do together in this world. I mean, that, this is a common theme that I think we're finding. Um, you know, Rob, you, you can... Um, let me know your thoughts on this as well. But, you know, a lot of people talk about the fact that, um, you know, you, you, at a governmental or a governance level, policy is really critical to ensure that we have a good future. But also that collectively, we, you know, philosophically, humanity is going to need to come together more in the future. And I'm not talking about globalization necessarily as much as is a philosophical understanding of where humanity fits in in the future, you know, combined with artificial intelligence and how we respond to climate and, you know, ongoing issues with pandemics and, um, you know, inequality and all of these, these hot buttons. Um, you know, make, getting consensus on this, um, you know, we, we had Brad Templeton on a few weeks ago and he was talking about the the stewards versus the um, the keens, you know, um, people keen on the future and the stewards of history and the fact that technology always seems to win and it creates this uh, friction against people who are very traditional in their viewpoint. But getting consensus about where we go to in the future is, is often a really difficult thing. So um, have you got any thoughts on that in, in terms of, how we can be better at getting people to come together in terms of these the, the future vision of humanity. Uh, Daniel Dennett, uh, a, a wonderful philosopher whose books are suspiciously easy to read, uh, uh, nonetheless, uh, in my opinion, uh, contain uh, some of the deepest uh, ideas uh, in a manner that uh, that is reliably. Uh, solid and and, and valuable, uh, wrote a book uh, called uh, Freedom Evolves. And in that book, he uh, talks about many things, amongst them how evolution improves in time as well, and how the emergent phenomena, including um, uh, free will, according to his worldview, uh, become viable from substrates that uh, apparently include them as a potential, but uh, looking at the substrate itself is hard to understand what those possibilities are. And 
uh, all of uh, Dennett's uh, writing has been very influential uh, on my thinking, especially uh, the ideas in, in this book. And I feel that uh, we are uh, able of uh, creating infrastructure that is then the basis for a better uh, understanding of the world, both from the point of view of, of science and technology, but also from the point of view of policy and social organization. When um, more than 10 years ago, I started talking about the concept of network society, uh, the starting point there uh, was that uh, contrary to what most people feel, it is not society that is shaping and dictating uh, um, scientific and technological policy, for example, allocating right. research dollars and then deciding what results to adopt and what results to, to discard or shy away from, uh, but that uh, it is... There's not a lot of scientific method to policy. Uh, well, there, and, and there, there is, is a lot of hubris policymakers believing that they have the answers. Uh, they, they are in a, a, an unenviable position because whether they are elected or appointed, they are supposed to have the answers. It is very hard for a policymaker to say, you know, let's have a lean, agile approach uh, make a, a thousand mistakes, and I'm sure that we will find actually what works. Uh, they would be fired uh, yeah, very, exactly. very rapidly, right? So what in reality happens is that uh, you have uh, technologies that are improving and making a given uh, social organization possible. Uh, it wasn't a problem how to reach global consensus 500 years ago, because communication was so slow that uh, by the time one continent was in sync with what another continent was thinking or desiring or, or aiming for, well, everything would have been completely different again. Uh, the, the heartbeat of the planet in terms of what human society needed or wanted uh, couldn't uh, be in sync. Yeah, but but today, do you really think that's the case today? I mean, look today, you look around the world. You've got a war in the Ukraine, uh, where you know basically an oil uh, oligarch has invaded the sovereign, uh, you know, the sovereign nation uh, next door, and, and is, is bombarding cities uh, in a most brutal fashion. Uh, in the United States, where I live, uh, we have uh, one political party that seems to be hell-bent on dismantling the federal government and violating every norm of, of policymaking in the process. Uh, so uh, as I look around the world, I am having a tough time finding the optimism uh, when I hear you talk about global consensus or consensus even between two continents. Right now, it seems like we're fragmenting into, uh, into more polarization and more conflict. Most of uh, those uh, are examples of what I'm saying because uh, the war in Ukraine or uh, the moral panic around certain uh, things in, in the U.S. reverberate around the planet almost instantaneously. Um, there are many uh, international bodies that predict um, 
food shortages, if not even famine, as a consequence of the war in Ukraine. Uh, right. There are um, yeah. uh, conversations around uh, the role of uh, gender and uh, uh, pronouns uh, and and uh, very American topics uh, in countries uh, like Italy, for example, where language is inherently sexist. Mm -hmm. um, right. A table... Uh, is male or female in in Italy, right? How can you not be sexist in your language when uh, every noun uh, is is either male or or female? Uh, with, with contradictions really too, point. because uh, uh, one hand is is male, two hands are female. Um, <laughs> uh, crazy. Um, I won't but, even ask why that is. <laughs> and they wouldn't be able to answer. But I have a Spanish friend who said, um, said if there's a room of women uh, that are talking, then there's one way to describe it. As soon as a man joins the room, the gender of the entire room changes. Oh, yeah. And, and so That's he funny. said, he said, you know, this uh, this gender issue you're, you're grappling with in the United States, it gets intractably more difficult in, in other languages. So I can appreciate that concept. But tell me, are you optimistic as you hear about these things? It sounds like all we're doing is uncovering more ways to find conflict and more ways to disagree. Um, well, uh, being an optimist or a pessimist, I think, is um, not something that someone uh, chooses. Uh, someone is. I am an optimist. And as a consequence, I see I, the world I, with those uh, lens. Uh, I have uh, great uh, friends who are not by choice, just by their nature, are, are pessimists and see the world through uh, their lens. Now, uh, after the fact, uh, we then tend uh, to select and find ways to justify our positions. That is why uh, websites like Our World in Data uh, are so uh, useful and, and valuable because they try to assemble data sets that can objectively illustrate whether certain conditions globally uh, are uh, improving or, or, or not. Um, another one uh, is Gapminder. Uh, and uh, both of these uh, illustrate in, in beautiful visual uh, dynamic representations uh, that indeed, thanks to technology, uh, human condition has been improving for the past. Uh, well, we've certainly eliminated extreme poverty in in most cases. You know, China has obviously done very well at that. Um, but let, let's get back to the process. Uh, you know, as a futurist, um, and let me just start before we get into how, you know what what is your methodology um, in in terms of your track record. Um, you know, you, you've made big bets. You you made bets on crypto and, and, and blockchain and other stuff very early in the process on the network uh, solution side of things. What is it that you count as some of your more successful bets in the past in respect to the future that, that evolved? Um, I like uh, trends uh, that uh, can not prove me wrong because they are long <laughs> enough. Uh, That's my that, joke about uh, what is the definition of a futurist, right? It's ne it's never being wrong today. 
That's that's right. Or uh, being uh, luckily dead uh, by the time <laughs> yeah. you, you you could be wrong. Uh, so um, I have uh, been um, teaching uh, Cisco uh, what is the Internet of Things uh, at the beginning of the century, right? Uh, and uh, yes. uh, they were very excited and then adopted uh, the uh, Internet of Everything uh, 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 slogan. Uh, now, I'm not saying thanks to what I have been telling them, uh, but um, their thinking and my thinking about uh, how the uh, interconnectivity of uh, our physical world is going to increase by many, many orders of uh, magnitude uh, is similar and still unfolding. Um, I have been talking about uh, conversational interfaces and how um, artificial intelligence is going to enable a new way of uh, interacting with uh, our digital world. And I am very excited about how today uh, we are not only uh, starting to speak to smart speakers uh, uh, as a matter of fact, wherever they are, and, uh, uh, you know, for some of us, uh, uh, it is a daily happenstance for things just uh, waking up, uh, ready to um, decipher uh, what we are saying uh, with their little icons on the devices or the ring lights in a given color on the speaker themselves. But we have been just very recently witnessing the emergence of an entire new profession uh, that uh, people start to call prompt engineering, where the uh, foggy understanding, uh, even by their creators, of the abilities and capabilities of massive neural networks is probed uh, and and mapped through uh, natural language interaction when, when, that when is do bringing you out unexpected results. When, when do you remember the first conversations on neural networks? <laughs> uh, 1988, 1989. That was very early in the process, yeah. You um, were still I, largely expert systems back then, right? Well, um, yes, because there was some mathematical misunderstanding about how backpropagation could converge. And, and uh, it was believed uh, that uh, as you increased the um, size of the networks, uh, uh, the, the problems would become either intractable or uh, the, the system would just not uh, converge and would not uh, yield uh, anything uh, usable. Um, that uh, that uh, was luckily uh, resolved, uh, the, the mathematical misunderstanding, as well as, of course, the power uh, of the hardware um, dramatically increased uh, thanks to, to Moore's law. And, and uh, here we are. Uh, we have huge amounts of data on powerful hardware with um, uh, algorithms that themselves are um, very, very effective. That is why there is the renaissance of uh, 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 bottom-up approaches 
<laughs> versus the top-down that uh, dominated uh, three, four decades ago. Is is there anyone, you've mentioned a lot of different authors already today, but is there anyone in particular that really inspired you, that, that captured your imagination in those days, you know, back in the sort of the foundational times of the internet and in the internet of things? Um, science fiction of all kinds and, and, yeah. and all authors. Um, as we are recording this, uh, there is a... Uh, full shelf of books uh, behind me and in front of me uh, there are all the uh, paperbacks uh, with uh, right. David Brain and Neil Stephenson and yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Greg Egan and uh, Isaac Asimov of course and, and all of those wonderful um, books uh, full of ideas that have uh, driven uh, a lot of uh, invention and innovation because they have been inspirational for those yeah. doers that uh, turn uh, ideas into tangible reality uh, as as those ideas become uh, embodied in, in uh, what is possible at any given time. We've had several good conversations with science fiction authors, and it looks like we're going to have a couple of others. Some of the folks you mentioned. In fact, David, yeah, David's coming on. We we hopefully will get Neil Stevenson on, but David Brin's definitely coming on soon. So, and, and inspiration's had, a big part of it. You know, like you need the inspiration. Uh, I think many researchers and technologists toil in uh, in obscurity and sometimes in isolation. Uh, and so you need a good idea of what you're working on and what you're working towards, because those results might not show up next year or even a couple of years later. Uh, so that science fiction can be very inspiring for people in almost a religious context. And speaking of religious context, I want to talk to you a little bit about the singularity uh, and maybe uh, Silicon Valley's irrational faith in, uh, in the uh, accelerating technologies. But we should do that after the break. I think right now it's time for us to, to go to a break. Um, so we're going to take a few minutes break here. You are listening to The Futurists. I'm Robert Tursik, and my co-host is Brett King. Our guest today is David Orban. Orban is a longtime friend of both of ours, someone we've known for years and years. Uh, he's been at the forefront of emerging technology now for, gosh, how long, David? 20, 30 years, as long as I've known you. Um, so we will be taking a short break here. Stay tuned and we'll be right back and we'll continue with David Orman. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. We're back with The Futurists. I'm Brett King, your host, co-hosting with Rob Tursek. Um, I'm in Bangkok this week. Rob is in Eindhoven. Um, we are enjoying uh, being offshore. Um, how was your 4th of July offshore, Robert? Did you do anything? It's fine. But, you know, the one thing that's happening here, again, this COVID outbreak is starting to happen. So everyone's getting a little bit paranoid um, going back for the masks and so on. Right That's before right. the break, I was joking around a little bit about um, the singularity, um, because I think some aspects of the singularity, this this notion that 
at some point in the future, a thousand um, dollars of computing equipment will exceed human brain capacity, and then the next step will be that you know the, it'll greatly exceed it uh, by many multiples because the technology is improving so fast. And at that point, um, it's predicted by Ray Kurzweil and others that we will reach what is known as a singularity, a turning point such that everything we've known up to that point will no longer apply. There'll be such a tremendous change. And while that's a fascinating concept, and by the way, The Singularity is Near still is an excellent read, even though the book's more than 10 years old at this point. Um, some people have taken it very, very literally. Uh, there's actually a church of the singularity in Silicon Valley. And so, uh, David, I know that you've been involved in Singularity University. This is a place where I studied uh, 10 years ago and enjoyed myself tremendously. They focus on the exponential technologies or what's sometimes called the accelerating technologies. These are the technologies that are following that curve, that exponential growth curve, uh, where you know, at the very beginning, it's hard to detect much improvement. Um, and then suddenly you get to the knee and the curve, and then it takes off and it starts to chart up straight up on the chart. Um, we were now in the knee of that curve with artificial intelligence, something David was talking about just before the break. Um, but David, I'd love to tease you a little bit about singularity. So tell me, am I right? Is it a religion or is there some merit to the concept? Uh, well, uh, if it is a religion, I'm uh, an absolute churchgoer, uh, and uh, I am happy to uh, be proud of it, uh, to the point that um, I think we are already uh, in the singularity. You know, when you uh, are circling a, a, a black hole, uh, you uh, have a hard time uh, realizing that you have crossed uh, the event horizon. It, yes. My definition of singularity is uh, maybe less uh, quantitative than Ray's, uh, but uh, that is why uh, if you look at my definition and its consequences, you may end up saying, yep, yeah, uh, we, we are already in it. Because what I talk about is the uh, limits of adaptability of individuals, uh, the technological ways to push the limits of this adaptability, and some people who potentially throw in the towel because they renounce those tools, and as a consequence, they voluntarily and definitively stay behind. They... Yeah. And we see that right now in the EU. The European Union has been struggling to okay. define a way to uh, regulate artificial intelligence uh, for years. I've talked to a couple of EU ministers about that. And now they're trying to like, they have sort of a shopping list of, e of artificial intelligence technologies that they'd like to apply regulation to. I look at that and say, gosh, the Americans are going to love this and the Chinese as well, because it means the Europeans are just getting off the playing field. They're not going to compete. What's your take the, on that? David? But, you know, but but I think China has has taken a heavier hand in terms of regulation of AI more recently. The biggest problem is in the US is AI is running rampant right now. You yeah. know, there's 600 federal databases with facial recognition on them. You know, you've got the Facebook, uh, you know, Cambridge Analytica thing, behavioral yeah. modification attempts and things like that. You know, I mean, it, it's it's clear that some sort of regulation is needed in, in, in the US. If anything, I think China's probably got a more mature view of this, but um, which we always thought the singularity would come out of the States, out of US-based tech 
companies. But you know, to respond to Robert, uh, the yeah. EU believes that you can innovate by uh, regulation. Uh, we, we we do have, you know, we have uh, fintech, uh, we have uh, govtech, uh, um, how to create uh, better ways to govern, uh, and we have uh, regtech. But the EU definitely took uh, the interpretation of regulatory technology and its implications uh, too far. Uh, to the point that uh, that it can be uh, absolutely harmful the um, a scientific uh, uh, objection um, against uh, genetically modified organisms uh, for example led to the uh, uh, to to African countries not uh, buying um, golden rice, so-called golden rice, that has been enhanced uh, through uh, its ability to produce or include uh, vitamin B. And, and this led to an unnecessary increase uh, in um, uh, blindness due to uh, a vitamin defici deficiency, uh, especially in children, that, that, uh, that could have been avoided were it not for this anti-scientific stance uh, from the EU. So now you sound like an American, David. You're talking like an American politician, talking about regulation, working against the interests of, of the future of being anti-scientific. I, I spoke to a, a Finnish foreign minister recently who complained that the United States has outsourced tech regulation to the EU. Yeah, I thought that was a very that's, clever way of looking at it. That's a fair point, yeah. Like we just yes. aren't even attempting to regulate this stuff. The Europeans are struggling with it, and you're right. But, but you know, once you like down if, imposing it. because of GDPR and and you know all those sort of things, you know, you you effectively, as an American company, you have to you, you know the the European standard is what you end up encoding because yeah, you know you you have to be compliant with EU laws and and um. You know, you can't really do – what can you do operationally in the US that allows you free reign that you can't do in the EU as a, as a global platform? It's very difficult to, st to really code those differences because even a European citizen who comes to the States and is using the platform, it, you know, it, it, they, it, it, they're going to have a case with the EU law, right? So yeah, that's true. That's true. Let me let me respond to David in a different way uh, that builds on one of his other observations, which is that we might actually already be in the singularity. And one of the one of the uh, signposts for that, one of the things that indicates that we're entering this phase of, of singularity, which is to say, a technological change that is moving at such a rapid pace that humanity cannot keep up. Well, one of the signs that that might be happening is. Around the world, we're starting to see institutions break down, traditional institutions that have done very well, and institutions that have served us for 50 or 70 years are starting to fall apart. We're seeing a reactive uh, response. Uh, governments don't seem to be able to be on top of this. The, the conversation about regulation, although we're kidding a little bit here, we're joking a little bit, that's one illustration of it. Uh, governments find themselves on the back foot. They can't keep abreast of or stay ahead of technological development. David, what's your perspective there? You have a you have your own term you've coined for this. It's not accelerating technology; it's jolting technology. That's right. Uh, the mathematical term uh, for the first derivative of acceleration is uh, the jolt. Uh, there is an alternative. 
uh, term as well, uh, jerk is the same, jolt or, or jerk. <laughs> but uh, when I uh, uh, thought about uh, publishing these uh, uh, thoughts, uh, I, I decided it was better to end up calling them jolting technologies rather than jerking technologies, uh, which uh, would have uh, led to some misunderstandings of what I'm talking about. Uh, so uh, jolting technologies are those where the rate of acceleration is increasing. And uh, there are many. Uh, the, the, the simplest to illustrate is maybe a rocket where the, uh, the propellant is consumed as the engine roars at full power. Uh, and as a consequence, the acceleration of the rocket is uh, able to increase uh, because the mass uh, of uh, the, the, the rocket is diminishing. Force uh, is constant mass is diminishing and as a consequence the acceleration is increasing right but even other, in the past the the engines would actually get lighter because it would burn off the uh that is um, true as well the, yes the protective yes. uh coating of the engine bell and uh, and uh, the um examples are are numerous uh, in um uh, quantum computing, for example, when you add uh, qubits uh, to the system, you are not merely uh, increasing uh, the power of the system at the rate uh, of uh, uh, what you would expect in, in traditional computers, uh, but uh, with uh, uh, an increasing rate of acceleration. Um, artificial intelligence, uh, many people have been expecting uh, a tapering off uh, in the increase of the power of neural networks as the size of these networks increases, but it hasn't been happening. Uh, it, the contrary, the more you increase the sizes, and now we are talking about um, neural networks with uh, um, um, not billions, but trillions, trillions of parameters, yeah. uh, the, their, their uh, abilities uh, start to include uh, new and new uh, things. Uh, a, a wonderful example um, I, I saw just a couple of weeks ago uh, in the uh, field of, of um, those systems that generate images based on the prompts uh, you give them. Yeah. And, and uh, one of the examples was uh, a kangaroo um, standing in front of the uh, Sydney Opera holding a sign uh, with uh, written on um, artificial intelligence or something like that. And with just a few hundred million parameters, the, the the network wasn't even able to draw a decent uh, animal. With its full power, uh, it was able to represent the scene perfectly, including the, the, the written element. And in the middle, it is very funny, uh, so endearing, because maybe it gets the uh, kangaroo right, but uh, the, the opera house in the back is, is fishy. Right. Uh, the writing on the label it looks like it's it's just coming up with something, it's, it's but it doesn't know how to pick. write really. Yeah. Uh, so, 
all of these, from from rockets to quantum computing to um, artificial intelligence and others, are examples of what I call jolting technologies, which are harder to decipher, harder to predict, harder to uh, regulate. Uh, so it is not a surprise, uh, Robert, as you said, that uh, organizations uh, are unable to cope, that uh, organizations are breaking apart uh, because their role of understanding and regulating, being on top of this uh, is is completely uh, eliminated. And in fact, many of the cycles in government are based on an agrarian economy from 150 years ago. You know, the reason Americans still vote on Tuesdays is because that was market day, right? That was the day... Um, when farmers would come to town, they couldn't travel on Sunday because that was a day of church. So they would pack up their wagons on Monday and come into town on Tuesday. And that seemed to be the date that the American, uh, the U.S. government decided was the best day for voting. Now, today in the 21st century, this is an absurdity. Uh, you know, and other countries have been a little bit more nimble. They've been able to move their voting to the weekend, sometimes the entire weekend. Uh, sometimes like in Australia, it's a national holiday. And so everybody can vote even if you have to work. Um, but yeah, you see examples of this everywhere you travel to where governments seem to be caught in a reactive mode. Uh, they're unable to anticipate. They're not well informed. Many of the times the people in government aren't really scientifically literate in a way where they can um, they can master these technologies. And so they rely on think tanks. They rely on advisors. And too often they rely on lobbyists uh, who are going to pay their way to advising. I don't know if you come into any contact uh, with those folks in your line of work, David, uh, but it would be quite interesting, I think, to hear about your perspectives um, and the kind of advice that you give to clients because you're an advisor. You know, What do you tell companies today about the future, how to prepare for jolting technology? Um, what I uh, love about our world today is that the barriers to entry for all of these technologies are uh, disappearing. Uh, do you want to experiment with space, space technology? Uh, you would think that requires billions of dollars. Not true. Um, the um, European Space Agency is dying for uh, individuals and companies to take advantage of the immense amount of Earth observation data that they are making available for free including for commercial applications. They have an entire summer school uh, that teaches you how to incorporate um, uh, your, your ability of um, using space originating data in, in your um, corporate uh, applications. Uh, do you uh, want to understand how quantum computers work? work? Uh, the um, platforms that Microsoft and, and Google and IBM uh, make available uh, let you play with quantum computers in order to understand yeah. uh, how uh, their logic is fundamentally different from uh, the, the previous computing uh, architectures. And of course, AI, uh, where 
you can sign up uh, and get access to GPT-3, uh, which uh, generates text for your marketing copy, or uh, use uh, DALI or Mid-Journey uh, in order to um, create uh, the illustrations for your next uh, slide presentation, which is actually what I did a couple of days ago, uh, where our uh, excitedly throughout uh, all the uh, remaining stock photos that uh, were lingering in my presentation and in a few minutes interactively and actually sharpening my cool. thinking as I, I was that, uh, doing it uh, I created the slides uh, uh, that I delivered in Seoul uh, uh, remotely so and these these tell the you, they images, are beautiful the images were created by an AI that's yeah, right. Dolly. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's uh, awesome. And and um, it, it, it is it, it is very powerful. Not only because it represents the concepts uh, that you want, but because you can add descriptors and that's styles right. yeah, that yeah. will represent those concepts. So you can uh, have like a kind theme, of emotional the theme, message, yes, a yeah, theme, yeah. the style that you want to convey. That's awesome. I'm it could be like, like you can ask it to do the Game of Thrones pictures rendered in a style of Dr. Seuss. <laughs> and as absurd as that sounds, people are doing this. you got to search it. Dolly awesome. is an amazing tool. What's remarkable with Dolly and GPT-3 is how good they got how, how, so quickly. It's all in the last 18 months. Uh, you know, just two years ago, it was easy for copywriters at an ad agency or for screenwriters to dismiss artificial intelligence. People in the creative industry said AI will never displace us. Now it's quite evident yeah, that everybody yeah, in those said industries. The same thing about the internet, man. Internet advertising, it's never going to yeah. replace, uh, you know, print and, and TV. You know, it's like, not going to replace the ad agency has been really bad at predicting the future, actually. That's true. But they're, they're going to have to learn to work with these tools. And so sure. just what we were just describing about Dali, where, you know, some creative person is kind of directing it and collaborating with the AI. AI is a tool that accelerates the process. I think that's going to be likely in every creative industry in the very near future. Now, David, just to, if we were having this conversation 18 months ago, you would have been for sure telling us about cryptocurrency, blockchain, Web3, and all these exciting yeah. things. Because at that time, those fields were white hot and they were booming. It looked like the future at that point. But today, we're recording this in July of 2022, where the crypto market has been bad and getting worse month after month after month. This has been a terrible year, a major setback for cryptocurrency. And today, the newspapers are full of headlines talking about the crypto crash and how it's not the same as the dot-com crash in 2000. Uh, now, I know you work a lot with the blockchain. Would you like to respond to what I just said? Would you like to tell us a little bit about what you're doing with the blockchain and tell us where we should be optimistic about blockchain or even crypto? Um, I have a long-term perspective on things, and uh, this is the third or fourth uh, crypto winter that I'm uh, uh, weathering, right? Um, and uh, at Beyond Enterprises, we recommend uh, our clients not to focus uh, on the next week or next month, but really uh, ask themselves uh, what is the long-term value they can uh, build. I am fully convinced that uh, blockchain and Bitcoin are here to stay. I 
actually uh, believe that the current uh, uh, downturn is is healthy because it uh, eliminates uh, projects that do not have the staying power that is necessary uh, that that are based exclusively on on hype um, we are working uh, with uh, a client based in india and uh, uh, today, there are about 10 million people using uh, uh, cryptocurrencies in, in India. Out of 1.4 billion people, yes. and they really want to extend the reach uh, of uh, these tools. Now, the opportunity for, for growth is tremendous. And uh, if uh, we have another uh, episode recording in a couple of years' time, uh, I am sure that uh, uh, a lot of uh, the projects such as the one uh, that I am uh, talking about will be here and they will be on a good path uh, towards giving value to an increasing number of people, hundreds of millions and then and then billions. Okay, it, but we've been hearing about that for 12 years now with respect to blockchain and cryptocurrency. <laughs> Um, every time I talk to people in that field, they're like, oh, just wait, you're going to start to use Bitcoin or other kinds of currency to purchase real things in the real world. That hasn't happened. No one uses these currencies to buy anything in the real world. They unless might do it in the crypto using, domain. Unless you're using a, it, the E1, the central bank digital currency in China. Sure. Uh, so, or if you're using it for money, uh, Robert, money transfers, you, are you know, for remittances. About, yeah, you are talking about sure. the, the, the global heartbeat. If I came to you in 1978 mm -hmm. and I told you the internet is going to be big, you would have told me, what are you talking about? If I came to you in 1988 and I told you the internet is going to be big, you would have told me, what are you talking about? If yeah. I came to you in 1998, you would have started hearing about the internet. I was working full-time on the internet by that point, so well, yes, I would have been I, with I'm you. I'm not talking about you uh, uh, specifically, but people in general in the world. So yeah. the fact that the Bitcoin technology and, and blockchain has been around only for about a dozen years, and we have been hearing about it, and we are asking ourselves, is it delivering on its promise, is due to the fact that uh, with the infrastructure we already have, the internet infrastructure, ideas can uh, move around fast, that we can ask these questions rather than being in the dark about them. And we can explore yeah. alternatives, the central bank digital currencies, which are a next generation, extremely dangerous I, I mean, blockchain technology too. Th yeah. This is where David and I probably differ with you on this, Rob, is that, um, you know, I mean, we, you know, David was one of the, you know, I mean, I know we had the Dow guy on the other day, the other week. Um, yeah. David Wolf was Carl. involved in it, right. D David was involved in the original DAO, um, okay. and um, you know, I, I mean, I just see crypto as and tokens um, as the underlying mechanism of smart contracts, and that's inevitable. Yeah. 
So there's no future where we don't have digital currency in terms of core operation of value exchange at a at a smart contract level. You you, you either have CBDCs or tokens or crypto, right? Um, so the example the, I, I, I give yeah. is uh, uh, I have friends working on asteroid mining, and in thirty years time or fifty years time doesn't matter. We will have guaranteed swarms of. Uh, smart robots uh, Which extracting is, is uh, going to destroy uh, the economics uh, of the current world system, right? Extracting uh, um, it very valuable resources uh, in the asteroid belt. So um, I don't know if at the time uh, Bitcoin is going to be dominating. I don't know if blockchain is going to be uh, viable. So as those robots coordinate and and uh, uh, allocate energy uh, and uh, and uh, propellant and bandwidth and communication and other resources amongst them by the millions if not the billions are they robert going to use wire transfers uh credit cards uh are they gonna write yeah, paper it's, it's, checks to each other exactly <laughs> Right. I don't care what you call the system that they are going to use, but Mm -hmm. it has to be something that is resilient enough so that when the coordination breaks down in an area, it can be rapidly and non-violently reconstituted when uh, uh, the communication becomes possible again. So you're talking about now the advantage of decentralization. That's what you're referring in, in case the network is disrupted. Um, for the record, look, I'm not I'm not anti-crypto. I'm long Bitcoin. I'm long uh, Ethereum. I've been involved in these things since 2011. So I'm quite interested in the space. Uh, I'm supportive of, of, uh, of DAOs and of uh, autonomous organizations as well. So smart contracts are interesting to me. But I think it is a fair criticism to say, yeah, to point yeah, out yeah, that at this stage, 12 years in, other technologies had achieved much broader and more widespread uh, adoption. And I'm talking about um, internet technologies and web technologies in the 1990s, networking, e-commerce, and so forth. They had multi-billion dollar uh, businesses happening, where today the market for, uh, for, for blockchain solutions for enterprise is less than $5 billion. And that's 12 years in. So we have to say that's not anyway comparable to other network technologies that were adopted by enterprise. You're right, in the future it might happen, and it's a mythical future where everything's robotized and robots are communicating with each other. It is, it is not a, a way to coincidence that I was mentioning the 70s. TCP IP was developed in the 70s. We are now in the equivalent of the 70s, maybe the beginning of the 80s in terms of blockchain technologies. That's where we are. Uh, we are not in the 90s yet. In the 90s is when the internet exploded in the common uh, conscience, consciousness of, of millions of people um, in America and, and, and Europe. Uh, but that is not where we are yet. We are still but yet, in the... But yet this the analogy doesn't hold up. I'm, I'm, forgive me, but look, today you have 5 billion people using smartphones around the world. Today, you have massive companies in the technology space, companies whose market cap exceeds the GDP of most countries on the planet Earth. Uh, we're not in the 1970s, where in those days, the number of users was small, the devices themselves were weak, 
the network couldn't transmit data very fast. Uh, the, the analogy just doesn't hold up. As you said, you, you David, said just a few minutes you said ago, it. Isn't the technology one of evolved. the criticism against blockchain that it cannot transmit enough uh, or, or cannot hold enough transactions in a in a given block, and its throughput is is too small. You you said it. The protocol itself is not mature yet in order to serve the needs and the um, uh, imagination of its its users it is going to catch up for example in bitcoin the lightning network uh, is a relatively recent uh, um, technology component in the in the same protocol and it is massively increasing the capacity of the bitcoin network uh, in terms of of transactions per second or or whatever you want to hey measure. guys I, i'm i'm mindful of the fact that we're running out of time here and so I want to wrap up with something a bit more optimistic because that's what you're, you're like, David, because um, I know that, right? It is, let, let me ask you this. We, we do ask this, uh, you know, at the close of, of the, the, uh, the episodes. What is it that excites you about the long future? You know, over the next 30, 40, 50 years, what is it that really interests you in terms of humanity's development or a particular element of the future that really excites you personally? Uh, we will have incredible opportunities to profoundly transform ourselves. I uh, was, uh, at the time Robert and I uh, met the uh, president of Humanity Plus, Plus the uh, World Transhumanist uh, Association, and uh, the a very definition of transhumanism uh, is the uh, desire and ability of individuals and humanity at large to ask ourselves, what are we? What are he we here for? How can we uh, realize our dreams? How can we understand and impact uh, the universe? Uh, when we talk about uh, uh, searching for alien civilizations, we ask ourselves, um, why didn't we hear from them yet? And we don't have an answer to what is called the Fermi paradox of, of not having detected alien civilizations yet. But in my mind, we are already expanding our impact on the universe with the speed of light in this uh, sphere that is expanding and uh, uh, interacting with the rest uh, of, of the world in and outside of the solar system. So uh, these opportunities oh. of uh, uh, understanding the impact of technology, uh, of uh, asking whether uh, AI can or should be conscious, whether uh, sharing the world with conscious AIs uh, is uh, possible, uh, how will uh, our world and the rest uh, of, the, of the universe change as a consequence? Uh, these are uh, incredibly uh, fascinating. Big picture questions. stuff, man. For, for me, <laughs> I love know, it. When, when people ask uh, what is the 
the purpose of, of, of life. Uh, each of us have uh, a subjective experience, what it means to be, to be living. We look out uh, of, of uh, our skull uh, and uh, we have these uh, perceptors uh, and sensors with which we can uh, uh, try to uh, decode uh, the universe and this uh, uh, kilo of uh, matter uh, in a, in our cranium uh, is is really a fascinating uh, piece of meat yeah. uh, our our brain and we're about to take it up a, a, a notch because of augmented if you think intelligence. About it, we are uh, multiplying the number of humans and if our journey is going to be shared with AIs, and those AIs are going to be uh, conscious, claiming to be, and us uh, will uh, accept their claim. It means that uh, the uh, mass that has awoken in the universe uh, is going to, again, exponentially or joltingly increase. And that is the, the, the purpose of life. We are literally waking up uh, the universe. And, and, and that is what I am uh, excited about when I think about a future uh, over the course of the next uh, decades or millions of years. We will have people looking back, similarly to how we look back at the Renaissance, and we say, oh my God, can you imagine in those very few decades, yeah. Leonardo, Michelangelo... I know, seriously. We need a new Renaissance, an AI-based Renaissance. Living right? together and changing the world. Thousands and millions of years from now, people will look back and ask themselves, can you imagine living in those decades, the first decades of the 21st first century, when those yeah. things were happening at a daily basis and they were still fuzzy about the meaning of the future, the impact they would have had? They changed the trajectory of the universe. Wow. Wow. What, a, what an optimistic note. What a bright note to bring us to a, a I, close. Thank same. you very much. Very much. David, tell us, how can people learn more? Uh, people who are looking for a, a jolt of enthusiasm and maybe some optimism, where can they find out more about David Orban? I am very easy to find. Just uh, Google my name. Uh, the website is uh, davidorban.com. I'm David Orban on Twitter. Uh, and uh, you uh, are more than welcome, not only to follow, but also to interact. I love receiving questions. Uh, I tend to uh, uh, respond and reply publicly rather than privately. Uh, you can, of course, uh, ask not to be named in the, in the answer if uh, you don't want to be identified. But I believe there is a great power in these conversations to happen in the open, just like we are doing now. So I welcome uh, your listeners, our listeners, to, to reach out and to follow, of course. Uh, I publish a weekly uh, video called uh, The Context uh, that talks about uh, things that uh, catch my attention and have a broader uh, implication. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I greatly enjoy interacting with, uh, with people who gravitate uh, around these uh, themes uh, because we all have different perspectives, uh, yeah. but uh, being excited uh, about the implications of technology and how it is uh, shaping our world is what uh, unites us.
Fantastic. Well, that's it for another week of The Futurist. David, thanks for joining us. Robert, um, thanks again. Um, and uh, um, this week's episode was produced by Kevin Hersham with support from our US-based team, including Elizabeth Severins uh, and um, Sylvie Johnson and Carlo uh, and the team in the US offices. Um, uh, please, if you enjoyed the show, leave us a review, five stars preferably, tweet us out, you know, mention us on Facebook, help us spread the word. The, the, the show is really getting some enormous traction right now um, and that's obviously because of the support that you guys have given us. Um, you know, we, we will very soon be, um, you know, the, not only the top-branded Futurist show around but, we, you know, we'll be in the top, uh, you know, 100, 200 uh, technology, uh, um, you know, shows in this space. So um, it's fantastic to see the growth coming. So please, um, you know, give us a shout-out and... And, uh, let us know what you think of the show and we will be back uh, next week with more guests on the future um, and but for now um, we will see you in, in the, the future. future well that's it for the futurists this week if you like the show we sure hope you did please subscribe and share it with the people in your community and don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show and you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.